So why are there such divisions between American Jews and the Jews of Israel? My guest, Daniel Gordas, has some important answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, in recent years, a name has come up often in talking about Israel and talking about wise insights in the nation of Israel, wise solutions for a difficult future. That name is Daniel Gordas. He is Senior Vice President and the Kuret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Jerusalem and a two-time National Jewish Book Award winner. He has a brand new book, We Stand Divided. Of this book, Michael Oren Former Israeli ambassador to the United States says, Impassioned, brilliant, and riveting, We Stand Divided is the essential book for understanding American-Jewish-Israel relations. Gordas has made an outstanding contribution to the field. This is Michael Brown. It's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. At the bottom of the hour, I'll take your calls, 866-348-7884. That's 866-34-TRUTH. But I want to dive right in with our esteemed author, Daniel Gordas. Daniel, thanks so much for taking time to join us the day after Yom Kippur. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great honor. Uh, Let me just ask you this before we dive in. The shocking news from Germany yesterday the rising tide of anti-Semitism worldwide. How does that make Israeli Jews feel right now? Uh, It makes Israeli Jews feel both sad and reaffirmed. Uh, Sad in the sense that, unfortunately, synagogue shootings are becoming less uncommon than they used to be. Uh, We have one in Pittsburgh, we have one in Poway, now Germany. I don't think anybody was terribly surprised that someplace in the world uh, people tried to kill Jews at prayer on their holiest day of the year. Uh, but it makes Israeli Jews also feel reaffirmed, because that was part of the point of the state of Israel, that the Jews should have one place on planet Earth where they can defend themselves and uh, live in pride, according to their own tradition. Uh, there were no attacks in Israel on Yom Kippur because Israelis defend themselves, uh, and we're quite fortunate that we've been able to do that. So sad and reaffirmed, I'd say. And, and what about President Trump's controversial decision to pull or reposition our troops in Syria, which gives an open door to Turkey to come in and attack the, the Kurds and obvious implications for Israel? President Trump's been a great friend of Israel. This is a distressing decision. How's, how's that playing out in the national psyche? Uh, well, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who was a controversial figure himself, uh, yep. nonetheless re- said earlier today that Israel would extend assistance to the Kurds in any way that that it could. I don't think Israel would go to war on behalf of the Kurds. Uh, But Jews feel a tremendous affinity for the Kurds. The Kurds have long wanted to go back to their ancestral homeland, Kurdistan. Uh, They have long had to fight for their survival. It's in many ways a story very similar to that of the Jewish people. The Jewish people has been fortunate to be able to build a country. Uh, The Kurds haven't. And you're right, President Trump has done a number of things that uh, Israelis have applauded, but I believe that Israelis are uh, distressed by this decision of the president for two reasons. Number one, they feel that the Kurds have always been on the receiving end of history, and America should have stood up for them this time. Uh, And second of all, of course, with American troops being pulled out of the region, uh, ISIS can come back into play, and that is, of course, bad, not only for all of the West, uh, but particularly for Israel, which is so much closer. Yes, so as someone born in America, 
What is it that causes you and so many other, many thousands of Jews to make Aliyah every year? What is it that brought you to Israel and has established you there? Well, we were very happy, my wife and I as Americans, deeply proud to be Americans. Uh, America, we, we know, is the greatest democracy on the face of the planet, and we feel really privileged uh, that we both grew up, my wife on the West Coast and me on the East Coast of the United States. And yet, uh, the state of Israel is the first time in 2,000 years that the Jews have been able to actually live out a dream that they never gave up on, which was to go back to our ancestral homeland and see if we could fashion a society based on our values, based on our culture and our language and so forth. This is a very unusual time in Jewish history to be part of the building of a country, kind of right after 1776 in America. Uh, so we really felt this was uh, a kind of a, uh, a calling, a calling from a higher purpose to be part of the stage where the Jewish people is going to write its future. All right, so uh, I, I'm in two worlds, uh, largely in the evangelical Christian world and a lot of work in ministry I do, but as a Messianic Jew in constant interaction with our Jewish people. And evangelical Christians don't understand why American Jews don't so wholeheartedly support Israel almost carte blanche, where it seems evangelical Christians put greater stock, greater importance in Israel's existence today and, and think we just have to stand with Israel no matter what. And they don't understand why American Jews are sometimes either not as interested, it doesn't seem to be as big a voting priority or an emotional priority. Obviously, you break this down in your book, We Stand Divided, but try to explain some of the dynamics for largely Christian listeners to give them insight into the Jewish world. Right, it's a great question. So first of all, I think it's important for Christian listeners to understand that American Jews are not nearly as theologically based as are many Christians, and certainly as are evangelical Christians. Jews feel themselves part of a nation, part of a people. Uh, they may see themselves as part of a religion also, but the profundity of their faith and their belief that the Bible somehow ought to guide their views is very different and much more diluted, especially in the more progressive parts of the Jewish community. Uh, so they have typically uh, kind of combined uh, a belief in the values of America with what they believe are Jewish values and Jewish traditions. And the values of America, as they understand them, of course, are highly universal. America was willing to be home to people of all ethnicities, all religions, all backgrounds, and so forth. And they believe that's what made America great for Jews as well. And therefore, they don't really articulate this to themselves, but they do find themselves struggling, first of all, with a country that is about one particular ethnicity, the Jewish people. Uh, and they also struggle with the issue of Israel's conflict with the Palestinians, and they just can't kind of wrap their heads around why can't Israel uh, make peace with the Palestinians. So I think uh, those are the three basic reasons. Number one, they're less theologically oriented than our evangelical Christians. Number two, they're much more universalist uh, than Israel as a country is, because Israel is a country specifically designed to save the Jewish people. Uh, and third, the conflict with the Palestinians, of course, causes them no end of anguish, understandably, actually. Right. So you, you say in your book, though, that uh, in, in Chapter 2, that this is a rift older than the state itself. So explain that to us. A lot of people just kind of think Israel appears on the scene and boom, there it is. And there's obviously a prehistory to it. And there are different ideologies from the Zionist settlers who were largely non-religious to the very religious that resisted the state of Israel that still resists to this day. So, so what's the rift of what you speak? 
It's a really great question. It's important to remember that Zionism was a long time, uh, was a long time standing process. It begins as a political movement in 1897, which is almost 50 years to the day uh, before the state of Israel is created. And during that half a century, American Jews were actually not as embracing and enthusiastic about Zionism as many people might imagine that they would have been. First of all, American Jews were trying to make a new home in America, uh, and President, President Woodrow Wilson, among others, but he was very explicit uh, yeah. that you could be an American, but you had to be all American. You couldn't be an Austrian American or a German American or an Italian American. You had to be American American. So for Jews in America who really wanted to take advantage of the unprecedented warm invitation that America gave to the Jews, the idea of helping to build another country in a different place felt very edgy to them. So they expressed support and they gave support, but it was never the wholehearted support that European Zionists wanted American Jews to give. Uh, and then once Israel gets created, by the way, Israel begins to speak of itself as the new center of the Jewish world, which to American Jews was both laughable and offensive. Uh, when Israel was created, there were more Jews in New York City uh, than there were in the entire state of Israel. So by virtue of what American Jews wanted to know, uh, did Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, go around speaking about a new center of the Jewish world? So American Jews were both ambivalent about the idea that they would help create a different country because they were worried about the accusation of dual loyalty. And they were, quite frankly, worried as well about losing their place as the predominant and most important Jewish community back then in the late 40s and the early 50s. Today, uh, things are very different. There are many more Jews in Israel than there are in America. The number of Jews in Israel is steadily increasing, while the number of Jews in America is slowly decreasing. Uh, so the power structure between the two communities is changing, and that's also very hard, understandably, for American Jews to wrap their heads around. Yeah, and uh, again, this is, from the inside, makes sense. From folks not familiar to it, they, they try to understand these things, especially evangelical Christians that are looking through such a biblical grid, and of course, Jerusalem, Israel, it's the homeland of the Jewish people. So it's so important to understand these dynamics. But in the book, and, and we've got maybe two minutes before, before the break, so we may have to come back to this. In the book, you do deal with the question of, of people or religion, who and what are the Jews? So the perennial question, who is a Jew? This obviously ties in with the question of our unity. Are we united based on religious practice? Are we united based on ethnicity? Is there something cosmic transcendent that unites us? So how do you answer that question? Well, I would say that in that regard, Judaism and Christianity are very different. It would be very hard for somebody to say, I'm a deeply passionate evangelical Christian, uh, but I don't believe at all in God. That would right. kind of make no sense. Uh, but for Jews, actually, strangely, uh, it may sound strange to Christian ears, that's perfectly possible. A person can say, I'm deeply committed to being a Jew, but I don't believe in God. Because Judaism does have a religious component, but it's also got a national component. It's a people, it's a memory, it's a way of life. Uh, and so Jews in Israel tend to focus more on the national, and Jews in America tend to focus less on peoplehood and more on religious traditions. So in a lot of ways, the Judaisms of Israel and America have become very, very different which makes the two communities understanding each other even more challenging, which is why I wrote the book, so the two communities could begin to understand each other and hopefully begin to build bridges together. All right, friends, the book is We Stand Divided, the rift between American Jews 
and Israel. I've got a bunch more questions in a few more minutes with our guest, Daniel Gordas. Daniel, uh, is it true that your grandfather was the JTS professor, Robert? Yes, that's right. He was my grandfather. Got it. Uh, So I just published a Job commentary I had been working on for years. But decades ago, that I think was the first academic book that I read on Job, your grandfather's commentary on Job with special studies that that furthered my interest in the book of Job. So uh, he's still making an impact uh, all these years later. Just want to let you know that. Well, that's very, very nice. He unfortunately passed away about 27 years ago. But um, yes, uh, that would, I'm sure, make him very, very glad. And uh, yeah, he had two books that were his major focus, Job and Ecclesiastes, and people still do use his work. So I'm so glad that you found it useful as well. Oh, yeah. And, And all these years later, it was useful when doing my commentary and translation. All right. We'll be right back with Daniel Gordas, the book We Stand Divided. So what happens when the ideal of Zionism runs into the messiness of history? Straight out of We Stand Divided. We'll take that up when we come back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, friends. At the bottom of the hour, we'll open the phone lines, 866-34-TRUTH, and I'll take your questions. Right now, I want to spend the rest of the time I have with author Respected Jewish thinker Daniel Gordas, his new book, We Stand Divided. Uh, just one more point I want to stay with before we get into the intersection of Zionism with, with reality. Uh, you say in the book, if Zionism's deeply rooted particularism emerged from the Hebrew Bible, American universalism reflected the worldview of the Christian Bible. So how does that break down for Jews living in America today? Are they stuck between that particularism and universalism? Well, yes, I think they are stuck between universalism and particularism. Now, American Jews today would not say that they're stuck between the worldviews of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible. What I think they would say is that they're stuck between the particularism of the Jewish people and the Jewish people's tradition of... uh, taking care of itself first and then taking care of others, uh, and the universalism of America, you know, the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your hungry, your teeming masses yearning to breathe free. America was an invitation to everyone, whereas the Balfour Declaration said that His Majesty's government viewed with favor creating in Palestine a national home for the Jewish people. So there's an American universalism, there's a Zionist particularism, and yes, I think very much American Jews feel caught between those two. All right, so when the the state of Israel is birthed, it's out of the ashes of the Holocaust. There is a rare moment of perhaps more international sympathy for the Jewish people. And there is a dream. There is an ideal, the Zionist dream, and and how this will be good for all involved. And and even the the David Ben-Gurions and the Golden Meirs appealing to the Arab neighbors, stay, there's room for all of us. And well, and then history happens, and not everybody wants to get along nicely, and and the, the dream gets very messy. So where do we go with that? I mean, is, is it a, a discouraging time for Israelis to say we can't realize our ideal or with the ultra-Orthodox community growing and their particular bent that, 
that that pulls away from the ideal. Where, how do you move forward with the realities of life in a, in a fallen, broken world? Well, we're all dealing with fallen, broken worlds in countries all over the world, on all continents. So it's a critically important question. I would say on the, on the ultra-Orthodox issue, um, I'm actually much more of an optimist than other people are. I believe that they can be uh, wooed into the workplace and gradually uh, they'll probably, or they might be able to, to lower their birth rate and begin to become much more active parts of the economy. If they don't, and if I'm wrong, uh, then it will be very hard for Israel to support that community, and there are economists who argue Israel could simply crumble under their weight. The more burning question for American Jews when it comes to their relationship with Israel is the conflict, as you point out. Uh, you know, Israelis are numbed by the conflict at this point, I would say. They feel that Israel's been an enormous success. Uh, it's been a, a thriving economic success. It has given new birth to the Jewish people, to the Hebrew language, to the Hebrew culture, to Israeli culture. Uh, the one major thing that we've not been able to do is to get peace with the Palestinians. And the main reason for that, I believe, is an Israeli, even though I actually favor uh, the Palestinian people having the ability to self-determine and to have some sort of autonomous state, call it whatever you want. I don't want to occupy them or, or, or live, have them live under our thumb. But they have to be willing to say that they don't want to destroy the state of Israel. And if you listen to Hamas or Hezbollah, they're quite articulate that they're not going to stop the armed insurrection until they've destroyed a Jewish state. Uh, until they change, there's really not much that we can do except to hold on. So Israelis aren't desperate, but they're kind of numbed and tired and just wish that the Palestinians would want a better future for themselves, just the way that the early founders of Israel created a better future for their children. You know, in the book by Ephraim Kirsch, Palestine Betrayed, he, he basically says it's the failure of the leadership from the 30s on, really, that, that has betrayed the people, and the, the Palestinian people have become victims. And, and obviously, your average person just wants to live a normal life, does not have an active, hostile political agenda unless they're put into it. They just want to be able to, to have a future and, and raise a family and so on. So it's, it's difficult when you have these conflicting ideologies, when you're, you're imagine your average Israeli and probably just a Palestinian family growing up would just like to live normal lives. But the, the realities are what they are. Radical Islam is what it is. So as an American Israeli Jew, what do you want American Jews to hear and understand? And, and what is the way forward that you paint in your book? So what I try to show in the book is that American Jews tend to look at the conflict with the Palestinians almost as a civil rights issue. In other words, civil rights is a critically important thing, and all people should have a right to all the basics that society can offer. And why can't Israel just work something out with the Palestinians? After all, we've made progress on civil rights in America. We made peace with Korea, with Vietnam, with Germany, with Japan, etc. What I think American Jews don't understand is how profoundly ideologically committed uh, the Arab leadership and the Palestinian leadership is to the destruction of Israel. So what I want American Jews to understand about Israel is that they're facing an implacable enemy that leaves Israel very little options to quote-unquote end the occupation and certain things. And I want Israelis to understand that when American Jews say end the occupation, they're not really trying to be callous about Israel. They're just reflecting an American view that all problems have solutions. We keep tending to kind of talk past each other. And the point of the book was to help American Jews and Israel begin to have a real conversation and to help Christian observers of the relationship try to under help them understand better why American Jews and Israelis uh, have, have such a rough relationship, at least at this particular point. 
Yeah, and I'm commonly asked why American Jews vote in such liberal ways where evangelicals are socially conservative. Again, uh, that's difficult for them to understand. So I imagine even looking at this dialogue as, as Christian readers read we stand divided. That, that'll just give them more insight into the dynamics of, of the Jewish people and, and the nation. So last, last question for you then. What do you want evangelical Christians, who are probably of, of all Christians in America, the ones most focused on Israel, praying for Israel, going on tours to Israel and having an interest, some in a superficial prophetic way and, oh, this is just the fulfillment of prophecy, but many others in a real heartfelt way, especially those that know the horrible history of anti-Semitism in the church, and they grieve over it, and they, they want to show genuine Christian love. For, for evangelical Christians in America, interacting with the American Jewish community, how can they be a help? How can they be part of the solution as opposed to just these curiosities to the Jewish community? Well, I think, by the way, that for many Jews, evangelical Christians are hardly a curiosity. And I mean, I think American Jews, certainly many of them, understand full well the enormous support that the evangelical church has given to Israel, uh, morally, politically, diplomatically, and so forth, and are deeply, deeply grateful for that. Uh, that's hardly a that. curiosity. Uh, I think it's really very important that evangelicals understand, that many of us Jews understand how critically important. Bibi Netanyahu, for example, certainly understands the critical yep. importance of the evangelical community and respects it deeply. Uh, in fact, one of the ironies is, is that he sometimes murmurs to his friends that he can count more on support from the evangelical community than he can from the uh, from the American Jewish community. Now, I don't think that evangelical Christians are going to be able to get American Jews to support Israel by virtue of a theological argument, because American Jews, as I said before, don't really operate quite that theologically. In the Orthodox community, they do, and there their views politically are much closer to those of the evangelical community. But I think that the evangelical community can model to American Jews a form of support of Israel, which is not racist, it's not, it's not denying the importance of the Palestinians or of of their right to live dignified lives as well, but simply a community that believes that the Jews, based on their history, as you so rightly said, unfortunately the Jewish people's history has proven that the Jews need a place to call their own. I mean, just yesterday yeah. in Germany, you know, again, Europe has not changed as much as we wish that it had. And the United States, uh, it's not so clear what's going to happen in the relationship between Jews and America. So I think evangelicals who simply remind Jewish people that Jewish history makes a compelling argument for a sovereign Jewish state uh, can be doing as much help for the American Jewish community uh, as uh, they have long since been doing for the state of Israel, religiously, diplomatically, politically, and so forth. Excellent. Yeah, and, and thank you for correcting my curiosity point. I'm, I'm quite aware of that. I had read a few articles recently where skepticism was raised about evangelical support of Israel, which comes up time to time, but you're absolutely right, and thank you for correcting me on that. A actually, we've got a minute left could you try to explain to our listeners how there are religious Jews in Israel who are anti-Zionist? Uh, yeah, it's very simple. It's unfortunate. I find it very sad, and I find it a little heartbreaking. But there is a passage in the Talmud that says that Jews are not supposed to hurry the hands of history, that right. we should be willing to accept God's decree, and that God will change history when God wants to. And so therefore, the exile into Europe or wherever, starting in 70 CE with the destruction of the Second Temple, was God's will. Uh, and they believe it was the Jewish people's responsibility simply to wait for God uh, to bring them back, and therefore for Zion 
Zionists to quote-unquote move the clock, move the hands of the clock on their own and not wait for God uh, is somehow breaking or denying God's will. What I would actually say as a, as a religious Jew, who's also very much a Zionist, is that I actually believe that the Zionist movement is God's work on earth. In other words, that I think yep. that it's true. We didn't just sit around and wait. We did something. But I believe we were fulfilling God's dream for the Jewish people. Uh, and therefore, I see no contradiction between this, that, the, the view of the Talmud and the work of Zionism. But not everybody agrees. And the most hardline people, even they, by the way, are, are changing slowly. They're a curiosity. They are actually, yes, a curiosity. And they're much more a small minority than anything. They are gradually coming around. But you're right. There are still some who insist that Zionism was born in sin because we should have waited for God to save us. Uh, after the Holocaust, that was a pretty painful and hard thing for Jews to do, so they pushed even harder for a state, but that is the answer to your question. Yeah, and, and it's a great answer. The, the three oaths in the Talmud, really, you could say there's no violation here because this is the hand of God. And, and really, out of the ashes of the Holocaust, who could have ever dreamed that there would be a thriving state of Israel just a few years later. Daniel, thank you for putting so much work into your books. It's an honor to have you on the program. Really appreciate it. That's an honor for me. Thank you, and uh, good luck with all of your important work as well. All right. Thank you, sir. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to our thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. This is Michael Brown, 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, any Jewish-related question you have, if you've heard criticisms, if you've heard things about my beliefs or teaching that you struggle with or differ with or have a question about, call to get clarity. By the way, uh, God willing, I will be on Adam Green's YouTube channel to talk about the Noahide laws, I think, in a couple of weeks. And then, God willing, by the end of the year, joining Steve and Jana Ben Noon, uh, sorry if I mispronounced any of the names there. Uh, later in the year, that's just uh, what works on their schedule. So I'm eager to do it, and let's put the information on the table, and let's graciously challenge one another if we have differences and try to sort out why. Uh, this this much it's important for you to know. There's nothing I'm covering up. There, there's there's nothing I'm I'm hiding. For everyone that everyone that posts a comment, why are you lying? I'm not lying. I'm telling you the understanding I have after examining these issues, looking at these issues, being aware of some of them for for many years, not growing up, uh, knowing about the so-called Noahide laws, but finding out later when I started interacting with rabbis as a believer. But there's only I'm covering up or hiding or whatever. And when people post these utterly pathetic, ridiculous comments, well, you're not a follower of Jesus. Like, what? Because I differ with you uh, about an alleged plot? to kill uh, Christians by Jews under the Noahide laws? Give me a break, please. But feel free to differ based on information you have or things you think are going to fall into place or some prophetic scenario. Fine, we can discuss that. Happy to discuss that. 866-34-TRUTH. So so look, just on the heels of my discussion with Daniel Gordas, when you read headlines of, of an attack on a synagogue in Germany, 
and, and here by an anti-Semite, and and he wants to kill Jews. What better day? What did he say to slam Jews? Is that it was translated from German into English? I assume he posted it in German. His his manifesto. I'm just reading it in English. That what better day than Yom Kippur when you're going to have Jews in synagogue that wouldn't normally be there? Then the tragic irony that Jews in a synagogue in Germany are protected because they have to have such high security because they know their lives could be threatened by anti-Semitism. That is the diabolical nature of anti-Semitism. It keeps rising and rising and rising. Unless it is fought spiritually, it will not be pushed back. And, and you can almost look at it that that's the default mentality of the human race, to be Jew-hating and to believe all types of conspiratorial lies about the Jewish people. And as I've said many times, Jews are like everyone else except more so. Strengths and weaknesses, like everybody else, except the strengths are exaggerated, the weaknesses are exaggerated. That just seems to be the way it is, all right? But when, when you have to go to a synagogue service in a country and have such high levels of security to, because you're expecting you might be attacked and the security that Israel lives under, you come, to me, come with me to Israel, God willing, next year, our, our Israel trip. You don't want to miss this. May 2020. We're filling up the second bus now. We're only taking two buses. So please sign up if you can today. Go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org to find out more. You'll see it right on the homepage, Holy Fire in the Holy Land. So when you go there, you'll feel amazingly safe. You'll feel incredibly safe. But that's just because Israel works so hard day and night with so many of its resources and so much of its population to keep everyone safe. But when you read these headlines, a synagogue attack in Germany on Yom Kippur, it's very jarring. And, and, and now it's been several synagogue attacks, let alone the anti-Semitic attacks in countries like France and attacks on cemeteries for years and years. I've said as I was, as I was updating Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, the updated revised expanded edition, which is now available, okay? When, when, uh, when, I was updating the book. It was jarring because there are things that I wrote about years and years ago and, and now writing ab- about them afresh. And, and they're, they're happening and they're unfolding. Things we warned about years ago are happening with even more frequency now. Very, very jarring. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to the phone, starting with Richard in Canada. Thanks for holding, Richard. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, how are you doing, Dr. Brown? Very well, thank you. Uh, I just want to thank you starting off. I, uh, I've devoured all your material. I, um, I think, I don't know, I've listened to a number of resources, but your material helped me greatly. I'm and, so glad. Uh, I, yeah, I wanted to actually come and visit when you were in Vancouver um, a couple of weeks uh, ago, but I couldn't yeah. make it. Sorry yeah, you couldn't make yeah. it. Yeah, that's, that's a long journey to get there. I'm not sure when I'll be back. But anyway, we can connect by yeah. phone uh, on the air, so that's great. Yeah, actually, my question is, okay, I've been on a search about the Mashiach for the last couple of months. I have literally devoured the prophets inside out. And yeah. um, the more and more, I've, I've probably spent two months, especially focused on Isaiah 42, 49, 61, um, 40, uh, 50, and 53. And, um, I've, I've got to say, I really, really, a couple of days ago, I got down and I really just couldn't deny. So I asked Jesus to forgive me and to be my Messiah, my Savior. Um, 
due to that. But there was one. Uh, now, Richard, one let, let me just ask that. you this. What, what's your own background and upbringing? To be honest, I was raised in a Christian home. Okay. Um, I, then I was challenged when I came. I was trying to, uh, years ago, trying to evangelize to a Orthodox Jew. Of okay. course, I ran across counter, counter-missionary material. And then I was really, really confused, and I didn't know what to do. And um, so that just kind of led me back to trying to go into the original Hebrew mm-hmm. and to um, start from scratch and kind of just go and let the text speak for itself. Yeah. And, and, and you know, Richard, and, you got to keep reading it over and over and over because we get used to certain things, cliches, we hear it a certain way, put it in a certain context. And, and I had to do that in, in some interaction with an ultra-Orthodox Jewish colleague, well, a, opponent, but, but friend, counter-missionary. And we were looking at the, the prophecies about the Messiah and then got intensely into Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 and back and forth with each other. So I, this is even recently, I went over it again and again and again and again, and I read it and I listened to it. And the more I did, the more the prophecies just jumped out, the, the more undeniable. I mean, I knew it anyway, but the, the more freshly undeniable it was that Jesus Yeshua is, is the, prophesied, the, the prophesied Messiah of Israel. But anyway, back to you. I just yep. had to throw that in. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I'll throw in, I think the real catcher for me was that one night, especially I prayed and I asked Hashem, I said, please. I said, I really want an answer. I said, I need understanding. I said, because I'm ready to do anything for you. I yeah. said, but I want to understand clearly. I said, because I want to serve you. And then um, I guess when I really went that night and I looked at Isaiah 61 and I just saw the you know the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and first thing that hit me was that that term is always used only about a single person not used and this is the person that's bringing restoration to Zion mm-hmm. and specifically but when I for that reason I never saw it before but that night when I saw the word mourners in Zion immediately Zechariah twelve hit me mm. and I just felt like right then something told me. This is the morning it's talking about. Mm. It's talking about when they're going to mourn for the one who they've pierced. Yeah, yeah. And he's going to come and beautify and restore the nation. So I just said, wow. And it, then it put into else. this is the one who sets the captives free. This is the one that Isaiah 49 is talking about, the one that yeah. restores the tribes of Jacob. The only thing that's got me, though, is, and that was actually going to be my question today, um, was I noticed the term where it says... Um, Isaiah 40, uh, not 42, 6 and 49, 8, mm-hmm. where it says, um, covenant of the people. Now, yep. I've, I've, I've trying to learn Hebrew right now, right? Biblical Hebrew, but yep. I am not versed enough. Some Tanakhs, they say when it comes to Isaiah 49, 8, um, the covenant people. And then you, of course, you go look at Isaiah 42 and those same Tanakhs and some of them say, a people's covenant, and then you go look in Christian Bibles, and it says a covenant for the people. And I just wanted to call in about this question and ask, what is the true Hebrew on this? You know, Yeah, what, what a great question. Yeah. But first, I, I love the story, and having, uh, having come to the reality of what Scripture says, it's brought you into that encounter with God, 
where you ask and receive forgiveness. So this should make you a, a strong witness. Having gone on the journey you have, uh, your, your faith will be even stronger. And, and may it be yeah. that God uses you to help other Jewish people come to faith in Jesus, it, it, the Messiah. Uh, so it wasn't it, just that. It, it wasn't just that, Dr. Brown. When I called upon him, a man came across my path who obviously he couldn't have known, and he just came in Jesus' name, and he told me everything going on in my life, including mm, mental problems. He yeah. prayed for me in that name, and I was completely healed of schizophrenia. Seriously? compulsive disorder. Yes. And, I mean, and this man, he, he has prayed for people with HIV, stage 4 cancer. And so, I mean, it was just sign after sign after mm. sign. So, so, Richard, how, how long did you suffer with schizophrenia and, and, and uh, con- I'm sorry, my whole life. OCD, yeah, obsessive compulsive disorder? Oh, my whole so, life, sir. My whole well, life, I, Pastor. Oh, my. And, and when, how long ago did you get set free? Recently. Recently. It's all been, I mean, it's, I've always had these questions in the back of my head, but recently, this last year, I got down and I just Incredible. buckled down and I just said, I am going to, because when you listen to the counter-missionaries, they come from a very boxed angle where they stay within the range of their arguments. They don't really want you to go too much off topic and go read the rest of the Tanakh for yourself. Mm. And, and I found, you know, so I decided I'm just going to go read the whole thing. Yeah, and I read, and I read, and I read, and like I said, that's what brought me to. Yeah, um, and even I wasn't understanding this term covenant of the people, but the thing is, looking in context in Isaiah forty nine, sixty one, and putting the servant together, and then I don't it's, know. It's like clearly, I, it's I was, clearly an individual. So I'll I'll explain the Hebrew on the other side of the break. But Richard, I rejoice with you. And the best thing. The Word of God pointed you to the resurrected Messiah. And then in the power of the resurrected Messiah, that Jesus Yeshua is alive today, God sends someone full of the Spirit to minister to you, and you receive a miracle that in the natural is impossible. He is alive, friends. He is risen. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Hey, just looking on our Facebook thread, Michael, wonderful to see that you'll be joining us in Israel, May 2020, eager to meet you. 866-34-TRUTH. So back to Richard in Canada. Uh, When you have the time, sir, uh, please shoot us an email to our website. There's a contact place there, and, and you just send us an email with your testimony what you shared with us here, if you put it in writing on a page or two, that, that would just be awesome. And, and we'd yes, love to sir. see that for, for the glory of the Lord. And we're here to help. If ongoing questions come up, you can write to that same email address. And, and between a, a colleague, a, a couple of colleagues and me, key questions, technical, difficult, theological questions, we, we get answers to you. So in short, really about the only time that you are going to find 
the translation covenant people is in Jewish translations that read it as such. But in Isaiah 42, 6, reading from the Hebrew, So I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness, and I will take hold, strengthen your hand, and I'll preserve you, and I'll give you or point you as a literally a covenant of the people and a light for the nations. So the most natural way to read the Hebrew is I am making you a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. The NET, the New English translation, which really tries to be very meticulous with the, uh, the Hebrew and 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 has extensive translation notes. If you've never used it, uh, go online and type in NET Bible, NET, NET Bible, and, and you'll get a website that comes up, and it has, with the translation, over 60,000 notes, translation notes, textual notes, background notes, things like that. Wow. Uh, and it will get in, you'll find it really, really helpful, and some of it is in real depth, some of it is, is more explanatory in a simpler level. But the NET translates with a covenant mediator for people and a light to the nations. So the most natural way to read it is what's called the Hebrew construct. So you you have this of this, all right? You have the first word, and it is the this of the second word. So it is the brit, the covenant of people, am, or sometimes poetically it would mean the people. So the Messiah, oh, wow. uh, the Messiah is God's covenantal mediator for the people of Israel and a light for the nations. And he's a covenantal mediator for the people of Israel because God has a covenant with Israel. He hasn't had a covenant with the nations. So he expresses his covenantal love and salvific work through the Messiah for Israel. And he also serves as a light for the nations. So that's the most natural way to translate it. I revisited this a few months ago in some of my intensive dialogue with counter-missionary Yisrael Blumenthal. And this is one of the things I, I refocused on, and I saw no good reason to read it as a covenant people, especially when it seems very clear to me in these passages that an individual is being spoken of and not the nation. And that also makes okay. it decisive. All right? So, so when you're reading the Hebrew syntax, I guess that's the way um, the Hebrew syntax would is a covenant of the people. Okay, I mean, yep. really, I couldn't, I couldn't see it making sense any other way, because when you read, like I said, when you read the rest of the passages over and over and over again, and then you look at Isaiah 61, yeah. it's, it's pretty clear that it's the same person. Um, yeah, it, 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 absolu- and, it absolutely is, and there's no question. It's the same person, and it's an individual there that, that has a mission to the nation. Hey, Richard, thank you for the call and the, and the wonderful news, and we're here to help you and strengthen you in your walk with God. God bless you, man. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. What a, what a, a great call, the intellectual search coupled with the divine encounter. Wow. That's, that's how you love God with your heart and your mind. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, Vicki Lynn in Asheville, you're still there. Yes, sir, I am. How are oh, great. you? great. Thank you for holding through the whole show. Welcome to the broadcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm doing great. Thanks for Thank asking. You. 
Shalom, shalom. I am a 63-year-old Messianic Jewish bubby um, in North Carolina, and I have a very quick two-part question. Yeah. The first part is Romans 11, 16 through 24, who or what is the root spoken of? I see believers who adhere to the law of Moses, and they say that Gentiles are grafted into the root who they say is Israel. So they believe that they're grafted into the Mosaic Covenant, and that supports their observance to the law. They also use that to consider themselves spiritual Israelites, and I especially hear this from Hebrew roots or Torah-observant Gentiles, yet I know from my own study and as well as your teachings that Gentiles are not spiritual Israel, and neither of us are under the law of Moses if we're born again. Now, I also see believers who say that the root in Romans 11 is Yeshua and not Israel, and thus Gentiles are under the New Covenant and not Israel, and not grafted into the Mosaic Covenant. So the first part of my question is, who or what is the root in Romans 11? And the second part is, can you please explain to me how many, how so many sincere, born-again, Ruach-filled believers who love Yeshua and seek His wisdom can see the same scriptures and come to such different and opposite understandings of its meaning regarding the law of Moses in the lives of believers? Thank you so much. Sure thing. So the first part of the question in terms of, of who is the root, what is the root that's spoken of, in context, it's not just the nation of Israel, certainly not just that. The branches are, are individual Israelites, so uh, that means that in that sense, so, so all the branches represent the people of Israel then. So the root has to be more than that. It is the spiritual heritage. It, it is the patriarchs. It is the promises. It is the, the messianic hope through Yeshua. That is the larger tree. So it is Israel's tree, but Israel is not the, the root of the tree. The root is the promises of God, the riches of his covenant uh, expressed through the Messiah. So it's kind of an all of the above, but it is definitely not just the nation of Israel itself. That's number one. Number two, uh, it, there's no passage in the Bible that works less for people to say that we are spiritual Israelites in Romans 11, because Paul says, I'm writing to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry. So if there was ever a place to say you are spiritual Israelites, you are no longer Gentiles, that would be the place to say it. But he says the opposite. Number three, there's not a verse anywhere in the New Testament that says that any believer is under the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinai Covenant. We are now under the new and better covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, and reiterated in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, and inaugurated, fully inaugurated, with the death of the Messiah at the Last Supper, when he makes clear that this, this is the new covenant, inaugurated with my body and with my blood. So we are not under the Sinai Covenant. If we were under the Sinai Covenant, then blood sacrifices would still be required. If we were under the Sinai Covenant, then we would be looking for a Levitical priesthood rather than a Melchizedek priesthood. If we were under the Sinai Covenant, then we would constantly be falling short because of justification by works and looking for the Day of Atonement for annual atonement. We're not under the Sinai Covenant. All those things were types and shadows leading to the fullness that comes in the Messiah. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2. The Sabbath was the shadow, the reality is found in the Messiah. So Jesus does not abolish the law of the prophets. He fulfills it. He brings it to its full meaning. Even the biblical calendar is in the, is in the process of being fulfilled with the spring feast, 
being fulfilled with Messiah's death, resurrection, and setting in the Spirit, and the fall feast will be fulfilled with his return and the repentance of Israel and, and the ingathering of the nations. So Scripture is very clear on, on that. And for people to say that all Christians, in particular Gentile Christians, are obligated to observe the Sinai Covenant is a gross misunderstanding of Scripture and does not lead to greater intimacy with God, does not lead to greater exaltation of Yeshua, does not lead to more effective evangelism, does not lead to more fullness in the Spirit. Now, any believer is free to say, you know, if God gave Israel dietary laws, you know, it must be a good reason for it. I, I want to keep them. Or I'm more at home following the biblical calendar than a, a later church calendar or an American calendar. Fine. So as to your other question, and I've, I've, I've got a minute and a half and I'll keep trying to uh, go as quickly as I can. As to the other question, how can so many people read the scriptures and come to different conclusions? Well, it's on many different issues. You've got Catholics and Protestants and Greek Orthodox. You've, you've got Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists. You've got Charismatics and non-Charismatics. You've got Calvinists and Arminians. You've got many, many different areas. Uh, you've got amillennialists and postmillennialists and premillennialists and dispensationalists. So we have differences, which is telling us that we have to humble ourselves and recognize that no one of us has all the right understanding of every doctrine, secondary, tertiary doctrine. That being said, I would dare say that if we will remain in intimate communion with God, so have a vibrant, personal relationship with God, and diligently, earnestly study on our faces, on our knees, with the Bible open, and really seek Him over many days and months and years. So combining the intense, serious study with spiritual intimacy and worship and love for God and vibrant prayer, that God will lead us into the truth, and we will not have confusion over these areas. I'd say many of us simply fail to make that effort, and while doing it, to remain intimate with God. Hey, We'll be answering some Twitter questions. You won't believe these coming your way tomorrow.